Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Charles V. Polak, Jr., MD, about the article, I Dare Usizumab for Dabigatran Reversal, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Polak works as a professor and senior advisor for interdisciplinary research and clinical trials in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University, where he also serves as Associate Provost for Innovation in Education and as the Associate Dean for CME and Strategic Partner Alliances. He is also Director of the Jefferson Institute of Emerging Health Professions in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is certainly an important study uh, for those of us who face trauma and intracranial hemorrhage and other sorts of bleeding in patients on these new anticoagulants, in this case, the Bigotran. And my understanding is that this study paved the way for FDA approval of this new drug? It did. Uh, and actually, as we take this, the study is still ongoing. We expect to finish it in the first half of 2016. I see. Uh, but as as many of your listeners probably know, the FDA granted adarizumab this special breakthrough therapy designation. And then once uh, we submitted the data from reverse AD and the preclinical studies, it also gained an expedited review. And so those two things put together uh, led to a very quick path to approval. Gotcha. Before we start, we should probably, for completeness sake, go through any disclosures you have or that are pertaining to the article. So I'm a consultant to uh, all of the companies in the so-called NOAC space, Beringer and Wilhelm, for which I serve as the primary investigator for reverse AD, BMS Pfizer, I'm co-primary investigator for the m study, uh, and then I'm also a consultant to Janssen Pharma and to Daiichi Senkyo. Great. Thank you. And how did you get involved with this trial in particular and the number of trials that you've been involved in? I've been involved in the thrombosis space for a number of years, both anticoagulation and antiplatelet. Uh, obviously, as an emergency physician, I focus on acute presentations. And the uh, the people of Beringer, as they were thinking about the leadership for the reverse AD study, realized that the majority of patients who would have an emergent indication for reversal, whether it's because of hemorrhage or because of a need for immediate hemostasis prior to a procedure, would be presented to an emergency department. So they reached out to me, and it all worked out. Gotcha. And let's maybe just start with the very basics. Digabigatran is a, a novel oral anticoagulant. It direct thrombin inhibitor, is that That's correct? That's correct. It's the only approved 2A inhibitor. Okay. And its half-life is about 12? It's about, yeah, it's 12 to 14 hours. It's, it's uh, strongly dependent on renal function, so that can vary. Mm-hmm. But in patients who sort of fit the, uh, fit the label, if you mm-hmm. use it appropriately, it's dosed BID, and the, BID. the half-life is somewhere between 10 and 15 hours. Gotcha. And approved for DVT and atrial fibrillation stroke protection? DVT prevention and treatment, including orthopedic mm-hmm. prophylaxis. Right, that's, right. that's the most recent indication. Uh, and then for stroke and systemic embolus prevention in non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Gotcha. And Idarucizumab is uh, a monoclonal antibody? It is. It's a fully humanized murine antibody that is directed specifically, and as far as we know only, against the bigotran has a, a very high binding affinity for dabigatran. In fact, adarucizumab has about 350 times the binding affinity for dabigatran that dabigatran has for thrombin. So uh, in the test tube and volunteers and animals, and now we see in rural patients as well, adarucizumab literally pulls dabigatran off of thrombin, pulls it out of tissues, and binds it up in an antigen-antibody complex that's quite stable. 
so, so that's unique in that other forms of anticoagulant reversal directly affect the anticoagulation system, where this is really just binding the, the drug. Correct. Uh, patients who are therapeutically anticoagulated on the megatrend, uh, and the megatrend, is, as you mentioned earlier, is target-specific. It only affects factor 2A thrombin. Should have, you know, unless there's something else going on, they should have normal levels of thrombin. It's just that that thrombin is tied up with the megatrend. So when you give the reversal agent and pull the megatrend off of thrombin, you, in effect, disinhibit thrombin and allow it to immediately start participating in, in the clotting cascade again. And in that regards, one would not expect procoagulant effects of idericizumab. Correct. Uh, and uh, we've looked very carefully in preclinical studies, and we're checking as well for thromboembolic complications, obviously, in reverse AD. So far, we don't really see any signal of that. And, and as you point out, really, its only activity is to bind the bigotran. It, it wouldn't be expected to participate in any way as a procoagulant or an anticoagulant itself. Can you take us through the, the research protocol and briefly, and then, and then some of the results? Yeah, so uh, the, the article you referenced uh, that was published in the England Journal is actually an interim analysis mm-hmm. of the first 90 patients. This is a study that we initially targeted for 250, 300 patients. The only condition of approval from the FDA was that they wanted us to extend it out to 500. So that's different for the listeners who've, who've read the article. Yeah. They'll see the target was 300 patients. It's now 500 patients. Gotcha. It's being pursued in 39 countries, about 400 centers, uh, which I think sort of reinforces the fact that what we're looking for is, is unusual. If we're having to cast that wide a net to capture 300 to 500 patients. And we we designed a study that is very simple in design, and I'm careful to call it a study, not a trial. We're not comparing it to anything. Mm -hmm. Adericizumab in preclinical experience looked really, really good. I mean, it it looked like it immediately bound to the bigotran and and held on to it for a clinically meaningful period of time. There were no adverse effects seen, including no allergic reactions with repeated administration of volunteers. As we already talked about, no procoagulant effect. It looked really clean, and so it really was difficult to conceive of a comparator-controlled study, since there is no gold standard for reversing the NOACs otherwise, or a placebo-controlled study, because if it looks that good in preclinical studies, then we figured it wasn't ethical to withhold it from people who need reversal. So we ended up with this, again, very simple, single-cohort, open-label design, looking at two groups of patients, and this distinguishes us from the other ongoing mm-hmm. reversal studies. What distinguishes is the second group, one we call group B, uh, which are patients taking the bigger trend who require some sort of urgent or emergent invasive procedure, typically a surgery, but it could be something like a pericardiocentesis or an LP, that can't be delayed for at least eight hours. Now, that's not in the label, but that is one of the enrollment criteria for the study. In the label, they just said urgent or emergent. We actually put the eight hours on it because we didn't want people entering patients into the studies sort of for convenience sake to right. reverse patient and take them to surgery. And that eight hours, of course, is based on the expected half-life from the bigger trend. It's not all gone in eight hours, but typically people are far enough below the anticoagulation threshold that you can proceed with a, a procedure that's not grossly bloody. Mm-hmm. So that's the group B patients. The group A patients, the ones everybody's most interested in, of course, are the patients who are hemorrhaging. And we have clinical criteria only. There really are no, at least in the U.S., there's no quantitative testing for dabigatran-related anticoagulation. So these are patients taking dabigatran who have a life-threatening or uncontrolled hemorrhage. And that's what the protocol says. That's what clinicians are expected to follow in the protocol. Again, they don't qualify the patient by any sort of laboratory screen. It's that in the opinion of the treating clinician at the bedside at that moment, this patient would benefit from immediate reversal of anticoagulation with dabigatran. So those are the group A patients. The group B patients are the ones who need that immediate reversal 
in the eyes of the attending clinician because a procedure can't wait. So we have no set ratio of A to B. We're just taking patients as they come mm -hmm. pretty much through the study, and I'm not at liberty to say exactly how many we have right now, but we're doing really well with enrollment. And we've held almost from the beginning at about a 60-40 ratio, group A to group B. So that's bleeding to pre-procedural. The interim analysis that was published in the journal is the first 90 patients. And those first 90 patients were 51 in group A, the bleeders, and 39 in group B, the pre-procedural patients. And what we found in the interim analysis overall is that the drug behaved in these uh, very sick patients. These were almost all atrial fib patients who, of course, tend to be older, have multiple comorbidities, maybe have some diminished renal function. We found that in that population, the drug behaved just as it did in healthy volunteers and older volunteers that had been studied in the preclinical studies and provided very prompt, very complete, and sustained reversal of the bigger trend, even in these sort of dire clinical situations. And most of the patients in group A were what, intracranial hemorrhage, trauma, Well, the, the two, yeah, the two leading, and again, we're only talking about the first 90 patients. Right. The two leading leading sites were intracranial and gastrointestinal. Gastrointestinal. And then we had others. And there, there, were, there were some patients, a trauma patient, for example, could be group A or group B. Right. Some patients sure. who, who were uh, blunt trauma patients or penetrating trauma patients came in bleeding badly. Mm -hmm. And in a way that, the, again, the clinician felt that immediate reversal was needed. Others came in with, for example, open fractures or open fracture dislocations where the orthopedist felt that, that expiration of the operating room couldn't wait. So the patient wasn't actively bleeding, but the patient's anticoagulated, sure. so they wanted to take care of that. Sure. And I was curious, why was the dose divided in, into two doses? <laughs> I'd love to give you a really <laughs> thorough scientific uh, answer for that, but it's actually a little more practical than that. So let me, let me give you the background of the dose. Many of your listeners will remember the RELY study, which was the large 18,000 patient study that compared the bigotrend to warfarin for stroke prevention atrial fibrillation. Most, not all, but most of the patients on the bigotrend in RELY had blood banked and then later checked for actual quantitative to bigotrend levels. So we know what this you know, kind of older comorbid population tends to do with appropriate dosing of dobigotran in terms of their actual dobigotran levels, which of course can't be measured in practice, but in a reference lab they can be. So we looked at the stoichiometry of adericizumab and its interaction with dobigotran, and based on those levels, it appeared that a dose of 2.5 grams would neutralize the median dobigotran levels seen in rely. And it just so happens, again from a very practical standpoint, that 2.5 grams is what was being studied in terms of stability for a vial that could be kept on the shelf for a couple of years. Because this drug comes ready to use, it's already in, in suspension, you just inject it right away. So we went to the FDA to look at the study designed for reverse AD, and the FDA said, well, that, that's great, you can reverse, they expect to reverse the median to bigger trend level, we want something more, we want you to give an overwhelming dose of your reversal agent. Because we can't measure where patients are starting, we'd like to know that in general you're going to be reversing pretty much anything that comes in the door. So we, in turn, suggested 5 grams, which, if you look back at the RELY data, would reverse the 99th percentile of the bigotrend level seen. So basically all the bigotrend levels seen in that, in that study of AFib. And because the 2.5 gram solution was already a, known to be a stable solution, what we decided to do was instead of spending time trying to create and then validate with the FDA that a 5 gram vial would be stable, shelf life and all that sort of stuff, so we'll just give two of the two and a half gram vials. So a dose is always five grams. It's just given 
in the study, and now as approved Praxbond, it's given as two two and a half gram vials. Now, in the study, because we wanted to get the information, we actually draw clotting tests in between the two vials, uh, and we found that information to be very useful. Not because we're trying to generate a case for a smaller dose, because again, it's when you can't measure how much the bigger trend is present, you, you can't. You, you know, we, we sort of agree with the FDA. If you made the decision, patient needs to be reversed, you might as well go all in. But it is useful information just for sort of looking at how patients present. In real life and in the package insert, there's no suggestion or indication or reason to draw that blood in between the two samples. You just give them one, two. I see. Okay. That's very useful. And I'm not sure if I was interpreting some of the results correctly, but there seemed to be a later rise in dobigatran levels, implying that perhaps for some patients they may need to be redosed with iteriocizumab. So the primary endpoint for the study is the maximum reversal of the bigotrin as measured by either the eccrine clotting time or the dilute thrombin time, both of which correspond very nicely to, to the bigotrin concentrations, but we don't have those tests in the U.S. So the, the, the maximum reversal by either of those tests at four hours, and the primary endpoint was 100%. Right. And the performance of the drug was so consistent that the 95% confidence intervals were 100 and 100 we, we had questions about whether or not that was a misprint, but it, it actually is that type. In both Group A and Group B, there were uh, a few patients who, at 12 to 24 hours, started to show measurable elevations or re-elevations in their clotting times. And, of course, in the reference lab, we're looking at the bigger drink concentrations as well. We started to see those creep back up. These were people who had very high levels to begin with, much higher than we're seeing in rely. Uh, and they, they were the result in one case of a massive deliberate overdose, uh, in a couple of other cases of acute renal failure, mm-hmm. and a couple of other cases still, and I'm, I'm going beyond the first 90 now, but in a couple of other cases still, patients who had coagulopathy for other reasons, in addition to the dibigotrin. So they were unusual cases. For those uh, listeners who've seen the article in the journal, we have the box of whiskers plot, and there's that dot above the whiskers on both the group A and the group B chart, because remember... The interim analysis was only 90 patients. That dot in both the group A and the group B plot represents just one patient. So this shouldn't be overstated. It's very unusual for patients to start to creep back up uh, even at 12 to 24 hours. It probably represents an accumulation of the bigotrain in the tissues that starts to creep out across the concentration gradient as all of the adariacismab eventually is is bound up with the bigotrain. The interesting thing to note is that, again, in the first 90 patients, and we're, as you might guess, we're looking very carefully at this in the in the subsequent 410. But in the first 90 patients, none of those patients who crept back up had any bleeding complications. Mm-hmm. So you could measure that their anticoagulation was starting to return or the dibigotrain concentration was starting to creep back up, but it didn't seem to have any clinical impact after initial reversal. Mm-hmm. But I guess um, one takeaway point might be that in patients who overdose or have acute renal failure, some caution. Yeah, so what we've done in the study as part of a protocol amendment and interestingly, both the FDA and the EMA labels sort of went along with this, even though we don't have any data really to discuss yet. As we said, that if in, in the uh, situation where bleeding recurs, and this is the, the protocol approach, and there's some objective evidence that a coagulopathy is still present, and in the U.S., really the only thing you can do is see, unless you've got a, a serial thrombin times, which aren't as good as dilute thrombin times, but they're helpful, or your APTT, which, depending on the reagent used, will reflect at least qualitatively. They reflect more quantitatively the bigotrain levels. If they start to creep back up, then the patients in the study can be redosed. The label says consider redosing if the patient's you know, bleeding starts to recur and there's objective indicators of coagulopathy. 
Uh, we expect those cases, as they are in the study, to be very rare. And, and I say that in the spirit of the whole study, which is that we intended for the study to reflect real-world practice. I mean, we have basically no exclusion criteria on enrollment. Patients taking dobigotran and needs immediate reversal, you can put them in. Yeah. And the reason we did it that way is because we think that's how people will probably use this in real life. You know, when you've got a patient who's bleeding to death in front of you or, or needs to be rushed off to the OR and, and you just want to be sure that you've done everything you can do, then you're going to give them a Yeah. The study is certainly, uh, I think, quite welcome. And I think in, in large part because of the frustration uh, that folks have had with these newer anticoagulants and the, the lack of reversal agents. I'm curious, especially since you spend a lot of time in this area, your thoughts about both releasing and utilization of these drugs without reversal agents and, and the wisdom of that going backwards. Well, that's, uh, you're asking me to use the retrospectoscope there. <laughs> I think that uh, Elinoix as a class, uh, in my opinion, represent a, a true pharmacologic advance over warfarin-based anticoagulation. Obviously, there's some patients like mechanical heart valves for whom warfarin is here to stay, or at least it seems at this point okay, yeah. they're here to stay. But for stroke prevention, atrofib, for VTE, the NOACs as a class show at least similar efficacy and at least similar safety in the very important endpoint of intracranial hemorrhage, mm-hmm. much better safety. Sure. Uh, depending on which drug and which indication, and you, know, you can slice and dice it in lots of ways there, there are a number of endpoints where the NOACs are actually superior to warfarin in both the, the safety and the efficacy side. Leading events with NOACs in general are pretty rare, and when they occur, they, they tend to be minor or what we would call moderate in severity, and generally can be managed with just support and holding the drug for a dose or two. Much different from warfarin where you've got patients who you know, are, are deficient in multiple clotting factors and, and the bleeding tends to be more severe, more sustained. Outcomes tend to be worse even when you have a reversal approach, which actually for warfarin isn't a reversal approach, it's a repletion approach, mm-hmm. but that's, that's, a, that's maybe a topic for another talk. So I think that given that you've got at least the same efficacy and at least the same safety, and again, in, in certain high-risk groups like intracranial hemorrhage, better safety, I don't think philosophically, ethically, it was inappropriate to release these drugs without a reversal agent. The reversal agent was being developed for dobigotran almost from the beginning, but it took a while. And you know, now that it's out there, it, it takes that good safety record and makes it a great safety record because now you can reverse it if you need to. Mm-hmm. All good points. All good points. Are there other thoughts or um, points that you wanted to get across to the listeners? I think the, the most important thing about adarizumab, and you could probably apply it to indexinet as well, for those who aren't familiar with that, that's the reversal agent for the 10A agents that's in phase three trials right now, is expectation management. I'll give you a little semantics lesson. I resist using the term antidote for adarizumab, despite the fact that it meets the biologic definition of an antidote. I think that using the word antidote creates false expectations, false hopes for the drug. I'm an emergency physician. Patient comes in having taken too much heroin. I'm not sure that's a safe dose of heroin, but comes in having taken too much heroin, not breathing. We give naloxone. Patient wakes up. That's an antidote. It changes the clinical situation. Patient comes in with benzodiazepine-resistant seizures. We find out the patient's taking isonizid. We give pyridoxine. The seizures stop. That's an antidote. These drugs, adaricizumab in particular, I think the same thing that can be said about indexinite alpha, are reversal agents. What they do is they remove the concern for anticoagulation with their target agent, in the case of adaricizumab, the bigotran, the bigotran only, from the, the list of clinical concerns that I have. 
And I think that there's sort of a colloquial concern out there, or a colloquial assumption out there, maybe is a better way to say it, that a daricizumab stops bleeding. It may not. You know, that people talk about the, the increased risk of major GI bleeding with the bigger trend compared to warfarin. So let's talk about a patient who's 75 years old who started appropriately on dabigatran for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. And unbeknownst to everybody, including the patient, there's a little tumor in his GI tract. And over the next couple of years, as he's doing fine on dabigatran, that tumor grows, and eventually it erodes into a vessel. And the patient comes in with bright red blood gushing out of his rectum. It's totally reasonable to assume he's going to bleed more because he's anticoagulated. If I give him a daricizumab and reverse the dabigatran, He's still got a hold on the vessel, and, and he's still going to bleed. It may be easier to control, and the point is, now I can approach this as a hole in the vessel as opposed to an anticoagulative patient with a hole in the vessel, which I think is a lot easier. Major trauma patient. You know, a patient comes in, taking the bigger tram again appropriately after a motor vehicle accident, has thoracic abdominal pelvic bleeding, and he's anticoagulated. If I'm in the trauma room greeting that patient in the emergency department, one of my top concerns is, oh, my gosh, he's anticoagulated and he's hemodynamically unstable, and he may have a head injury, and he's got all this other stuff going on. If I can, with one quick injection, or you know, two serial injections in the case of my daricizumab, over the course of a couple of minutes, if I can totally take anticoagulation off the table, then I've still got a grossly unstable patient, but he's easier for me to manage. And I think as long as people keep in mind that that's what you're doing, you're reversing anticoagulation, not treating bleeding. Now, in the, in the group B patients, pre-procedural patients may be preventing bleeding, but that's a different story. So I, I think that's a big advance in terms of streamlining and making more consistent our approach to these patients. So mm-hmm. the one thing I'd like to add is just you know keep in mind what this drug does. It removes anticoagulation from your list of concerns as a clinician treating an, an emergent situation. But then you still got to practice medicine after that. Right. That's a good point both for the uh, the physicians caring for the patients and the way in which they uh, describe that information to the patients and their families. So right. Good, very good points. Well, thank you for this very important trial. We certainly look forward to uh, the full analysis once the 500 patients are accumulated and learning even more about this drug. Yeah, we look forward to it, too. I'm sure. (laughs) Thanks for the opportunity. All right, thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare 
at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.